This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we hear how some political leaders got a helping hand from broadcasters to get a platform for things that they wanted to say on the air. Got a call from the National Party at 8.30. said they want to have Chris Luxon come on the programme and uh, make a statement. So um, he is with us. Very good morning. Well, one found it not so easy to get what he wanted for a big political reveal last weekend. We were expecting to have Bishop Bryan on the programme today, but we couldn't agree on the terms of that interview. But first... Local politics got national media attention this week in a place often overlooked by our national news media. But did the media focus on a bid to roll one local mayor actually end up influencing the outcome? These are the two opposing sides, really. Should it be Steve Perry that goes or should it be Ben Bell that goes? It seems that the feeling in the town is probably with Ben Bell at the moment. That was RNZ's Otago Southland reporter Timothy Brown on Tuesday's morning report on RNZ National, assessing the support for the two parties at loggerheads in Gore ahead of a district council meeting later that day. An extraordinary meeting for an extraordinary situation. Gore's councillors were considering a vote of no confidence in their 24-year-old mayor Ben Bell, just eight months into his first term, and also seeking to remove him from council committees. And the meeting was streamed live on the home pages of Stuff in the New Zealand Herald last Tuesday, even on the day that updates were still coming in on the fatal fire in Wellington. Welcome back to the media, um, and hello and welcome if this is your first time. I just want to go through some uh, safety measures here today because there are so many of us in this building. Uh, if it is to get unruly at the back, I will stand up and ask for uh, silence. But as it turned out, there was no need for any of that. The deputy mayor and seven councillors who'd called for the vote didn't even move a motion of no confidence. No, we didn't. Then we shall move on if there is no further discussion. And what the Herald billed as a gore showdown turned into a kind of kumbaya drum circle, according to the paper's former editor Tim Murphy, who's now the co-editor at Newsroom, who was looking on. Now, before the meeting on Tuesday, RNZ's Timothy Brown on Morning Report went on to make one thing clear. It wouldn't have made any difference even if the vote had gone against Ben Bell. You you can't force a mayor from his chair. He is democratically elected. He has to resign. He has to die or be convicted of a crime resulting in two years imprisonment or greater. None of those appear particularly likely at the moment. But even though the vote would change nothing, Morning Report co-host Corin Dan wasn't wrong when he asked Timothy Brown this. This story has really sort of blown up into the national conscious now, hasn't it? It sure did, and at the same time, the impasse was on national television as well as RNZ National. TVNZ's breakfast show host Matty McLean introduced the story this way. Gore District Council is in tatters with calls for Mayor Ben Bell to resign. New Zealand's youngest mayor was elected in October, but since then his term has been met with discord and controversy. Local Government Minister Kieran McAnulty told us councils are responsible for resolving their own problems and at the moment statutory obligations are being met. But is the Gore District Council really in tatters if its obligations are still being met, as the minister had said? Now, this sort of thing has happened not too long ago and not a million miles from Gore, in fact, when the Invercargill City Council revolted against Sir Tim Shadbolt clinging to the mayoral chains. But even though he was a national figure, that got nothing like the national news coverage of this case in Gore. Likewise, a similar case in Tauranga in 2020, where the council and Mayor Tenby Powell were at daggers drawn. 
Now, at that time, Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB accused the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern of plotting to take over dysfunctional councils. Why on earth are you making such suggestions? Because the department has written to both of the councils looking for information that they may involve the role of the minister in them. Uh, and you're suddenly making an assumption that we're going to take over... Well, that's one of the outworkings of the information they received from the letter they sent councils. to them. Those councils were in fact just following the procedure for a breakdown in relationships by notifying the Department of Internal Affairs. But there was a lot of intriguing background to the tensions in Gore, and much of them were aired in Kristen Hall's report on TVNZ's current affairs show Sunday last weekend, introduced this way. It's a story of gossip, controversy and dysfunction. When the country's youngest mayor squeaked into power last year, a firestorm exploded, peaking just this week. Now that peaking firestorm was the tip of an iceberg more than two decades in the making, according to what was billed as a special inquiry by newsroom.co.nz, headlined Mud and Gore. Tiano-based freelancer Vanessa Bellew had talked to more than a dozen DPRTs from the Gore District Council over the years, and she said they spoke of a culture of fear where employees felt they weren't allowed to make mistakes or were even targeted if they were good at their jobs. She also said that the council had paid out a six-figure sum for severance settlements down the years, many of them with non-disclosure agreements attached, and a former chief financial officer told the newsroom that his mental health had suffered after being forced out, and Chief Executive Stephen Perry had even arrived on his doorstep in London to confront him long after his departure. But last week, the Gore District Council issued a statement to Newsroom in Stephen Parry's name, insisting that all severances had been professionally handled and that two surveys of the council staff had showed that three-quarters of them believed the management had created an environment of trust and fairness. Now, much of this was also covered off in TVNZ's Sunday show last weekend, which featured the long-time council CEO Stephen Parry. Uh, trust has been eroded significantly. This is Steve Parry, the Gore District Council's Chief Executive for the past 22 years, speaking to media last month. Last six months would be the toughest six months I've had in my local government career. It's been a bit like a Led Zeppelin song, dazed and confused. But Mr Perry had refused, on legal advice, he said, to be interviewed for that TVNZ Sunday show last weekend. And you could be forgiven for being a bit dazed by the twists in this yarn. Mayor Ben Bell's mother is Rebecca Taylor, who used to work at the Gore District Council. Her employment ended last year with a legal dispute that cost the council more than $300,000 in legal fees alone. Rebecca now works for Councillor Joe Stringer, whose partner is Ben's former assistant, and they live next door to Ben. Rebecca works in the same office as Councillor Robert McKenzie, who ran for council as part of a team with Joe Stringer and Ben. Rebecca was the campaign manager and she's influenced public opinion of her son since her exit from council. Now, even before all this came to a head at this week's council vote, the tension was getting national media interest. Back in early April, for example, the Herald's daily politics podcast On the Tiles discussed the issue after Gore's new mayor appeared to be not too media friendly himself. The mayor abruptly cancelled an interview with the Southland Times this week. This is after he walked out of a meeting the week prior where his working relationship with the chief executive was being discussed. And while some Gore councillors said that Bell's time in charge had been traumatic for them, the spin-off's Toby Manhire pointed out this week it wasn't at all obvious just what it was he was alleged to have done to spark a vote of no confidence, aside from some communication problems which Bell himself had acknowledged. 
while others wondered if the problem was simply, is it that Ben Bell is so young? TVNZ's breakfast show last Tuesday put that to Logan Sewell, the leader of the Young Elected Member Committee, which was created by Local Government New Zealand, to support and encourage people under the age of 40 elected as councillors or mayors. Is this pretty indicative of what it is like for young people trying to get into local body politics? Look, I think we've seen similar cases across the country, even myself personally have experienced it, but I think the difference there is um, a lot of our young elected members have had mentors to get them through this. Um, it doesn't seem like Ben is getting that down there in Gore. And in Wellington the same morning, the local News Talk ZB host Nick Mills told his listeners that what Ben Bell faced was 100% ageism. I don't believe that age should be a barrier to anything in life, whether you're too young or too old. No such thing as age barriers. But Nick Mills did go on to tell his listeners he did value experience in a local leader. Are they disadvantaged from the start? People were talking about Tori Whanau. They needed, she needed to have time to get her feet under the table. She will make rookie mistakes. But is it time we did change the rules and made it compulsory to have sat on the council for a term before running for mayor? Now, last year, Wellington's current mayor, Tori Fano, displaced Andy Foster, who'd been a councillor for longer than most in the capital can remember, but he still couldn't corral councillors who didn't back him or the way he worked. News Talk ZB's daytime talkback callers are mostly not in Ben Bell's demographic, but most who called in were on his side. He's wrote it in. It just is what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? All these old bastards down there, you know, want to do things the same old way. You've got the young broom coming along and they're as reluctant for change. Well, 110% support um, what he's doing. And last month, the Herald's On The Tiles podcast on this also sought the opinions of Nick Leggett, who was the youngest mayor in the country back in 2010, and another one-term mayor of Wellington, Justin Lester, who said this. Um, look, and I just want to pay tribute to Gore. It's a wonderful little community. I spent some time down there over the summer of this year, actually, um, famous for their oats, uh, for their rolling R's and their golden guitars. Stereotypes travel far, it seems. Anyhow, after the district councillors in Gore backed away from that motion of no confidence last Tuesday and the demand for Ben Bell's resignation, Ben Bell told the meeting this. I wholeheartedly agree with Councillor McKenzie that we have real potential here to come together, to reunite and to find a way forward. And what a redemption story it will be. It remains to be seen just how much interest the national media really has in Gore District Council getting it together, or not. But in RNZ's morning report last Thursday, Ben Bell's counterpart in New Plymouth, Mayor Neil Holdham, blamed the media for creating his problem. We had the Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown come in and, and he was framed as a sort of a strong leader and a new broom and big changes for Auckland. Um, yet the narrative for Ben Bell as a 23-year-old New Zealand's youngest mayor. But was it the national media attention which actually caused the remarkable reversal in that meeting? Logan Savory has covered the gore drama and produces the daily news service for subscribers, the Southland Tribune, which he kicked off this year after a long spell reporting for the Southland Times. I, I absolutely think that's the case. Um, I don't know how you can go from publicly stating you, had, you lacked trust in the mayor and you were concerned he wasn't acting in the best interest of both the community and the council to a matter of a few days later, sending the council setting out a press release saying the council's united um, and they're getting on with it. So public pressure, which come from extreme uh, media intention, 
had to play a role in what was a pretty incredible flip-flop. Yeah, so in the Tribune this week, your publication, you asked the question, how did Gore end up in a primetime current affairs spot? As we've heard, there were similar situations, similar breakdowns between mayors and councillors in Tauranga and in Invercargill in, in your patch uh, in recent years that didn't get quite this level of media attention outside you know, their own local areas. What was it about this that got the media so excited? I think it's absolutely the fact that Gore has New Zealand's youngest mayor and it comes at a time when obviously there's been a bit of a spotlight on local government and whether it truly reflects the community in terms of age group and the majority of councillors um, are probably 60, 65 plus or certainly in that older age group bracket anyway and and you had a 24-year-old, a now 24-year-old as mayor and at the same time um, a long-standing CEO who's been in the role for 20 years. And I think that attracted a lot of intrigue um, and quite significant media attention, as, as you mentioned. There was a bit of interest around the Invercargill situation, given Sir Tim Shabold's profile. But I think you're right, particularly in the Tauranga situation, if you compare it to, to Gore, I don't think the, the, the media attention has been the same. And maybe some of those elements that, that almost, I mean, I don't mean to trivialise it, but in terms of media trying to explain a story that people didn't know the characters at all around the rest of the country, the fact that you had Ben Bell's mother had a history with the council and a falling out that resulted in a six-figure payout and all of that, those sort of elements also played into it for the, the national media, just treating it as a bit of a yarn? Absolutely, yeah. There's lots of strands to it. Um, I, I can understand the wider interest um, in it. But looking at this another way, Logan, if there had been, as some people allege, you know, a culture of bullying and exclusion or, or that might have contributed to people leaving the council, leaving jobs, or some people saying they've been effectively forced out of them, and if this was going on over a period of a couple of decades, was this sort of media attention overdue? Were there things going on that maybe local media weren't bringing to attention of people that should have been concerned and in the end, it's a good thing that, that national media have got involved. Well, I think quite possibly. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't another side to it. Obviously, uh, you could talk to senior staff at the Gore Council who are very complimentary of Steve Perry's leadership. I, I think um, the Gore Council situation is pretty well covered by local media, South and Times, um, obviously us at the moment, and, and others. But... Uh, you've got to remember it's a, it's a district of about 13,000 or maybe 15,000. Um, so it, it naturally gets shuffled down the order a wee bit in priorities just because of the, the size of it. Um, so I think what it does highlight, though, is the need to continue to uh, cover these smaller councils because uh, as, lo- as soon as we do end up in a situation, I don't think we are at Gore at the moment, where it, but if it's not been covered at all, I think then... There is potential for real uh, issues. Um, maybe in reflection, local media, all of us involved, could have delved a wee bit deeper earlier on. Well, you mentioned there's um, Stephen Parry, uh, the council chief executive, a, a, a real uh, important person in the story, uh, has supporters. Uh, but he didn't take part in, say, particularly that TVNZ Sunday show or hasn't responded to other media requests. You know, he's cited legal advice on that. But the fact that his side of the story in his own voice wasn't part of it. Is there, is there a fairness issue there? Did it effectively skew it in favour of those who backed um, Ben Bell? 
personally, I think it did. And I know, obviously, Steve Perry is probably in a difficult situation where he was asked to talk about his employer. Um, probably wasn't going to get much out of it by speaking in terms of his relationship with Ben Bell. However, what ended up happening is we got this picture painted of uh, young Mayor, um, the way he's being treated by Steve Perry and other councillors. And I'm not saying that that's not necessarily correct, but I also would love to have heard the other side of the story because we had been told by councillors that they lack trust in him, some of his actions over recent weeks. But we never actually got to hear what are those reasons, what what are those actions that they're talking about. Uh, Someone needed to tell us why they made the stand to ask them to resign. I guess in terms of fairness, you know, they, they were given opportunities to talk and decline them for, for whatever reason. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And maybe in hindsight, I think they probably should have spoken about it. It was interesting listening to Morning Report, the new Plymouth Mayor Neil Holdham appeared on the programme in the middle of the week and said, uh, look, there's an issue here, and he credited one journalist, um, Stuff's Andrea Vance, who wrote about this for uh, The Post last week. I think this is a piece behind their new paywall, so maybe a lot of other people haven't seen it, but... Uh, This didn't actually mention the Gore Council, but about the wider issue of appointed chief executives and the sort of corporatised system we have now in local government, which actually gives quite a bit of power and clout uh, to people that aren't actually elected. Real clout. Do you think he's right about that and and local government reporting needs to sort of broaden out and and actually look at that as well as the elected reps? Some of the councillors uh, that operate uh, well or probably don't hit the headlines as uh, others do uh, probably have strong governance in place. They are in charge and the CEO follows the instructions. Where um, some of the troubles seem to have come is where the CEOs believe that they need to fill a void of, of such and then they become the story becoming more involved in what you would argue is governance uh, issues and I guess in a reporting sense, look at the CEOs is probably uh, a worthy thing to do. Finally, it was interesting that when uh, it was all over in that meeting, and it looks like there'd been a resolution, and Ben Bell uh, spoke of uh, the possibility of a redemption story. But do you think there will now be national media interest in what happens next in the redemption story, or um, is the conflict a better story for national media and uh, the fact of it all being resolved and coming together in what Ben Bell called the gore way uh, won't be one we'll hear so much about in the national media? Um, I would imagine there's still going to be plenty of interest in this. Uh, if they can turn this around from, as I mentioned, in a space of a few days, going from the fact that they didn't have trust in the mayor, uh, if they were able to flip this around and all of a sudden, seven months into a three-year term for the rest of the term, there's no problems, I would be very surprised. So I expect there'll be more media attention on the Gore District Council in months to come. Um, and particularly, we've still got a situation where the CEO and the mayor are not speaking, so... So I just can't see how this is going to stay out of the headlines, to be fair. That was Logan Savory, the publisher of the Southland Tribune, an online service of Southland News for subscribers, which he founded this year after a long career covering Southland News and local politics for the region's daily paper, the Southland Times. Brian Tamaki may be launching another bid for Parliament this morning. There are rumours that this time it will be as leader of Freedoms NZ. We were expecting to have Bishop Brian on the programme today, but we couldn't agree on the terms of that interview.
That was Rebecca Wright on News Hub Nation last weekend. The weekend Brian Tamaki did indeed announce himself as a co-leader of a new umbrella movement called Freedoms NZ. But what was the problem that meant that this new candidate seeking support at election time didn't get any face time on News Hub Nation? Well, the spin-off later reported that Freedoms NZ representatives had approached News Hub some weeks earlier, eager to make an announcement on the programme, and had agreed to standard requirements that they let the producers know just what it was they intended to announce on the show. And in the case of Brian Tamaki, it was important to know this, as his respect for the media is limited, according to this bit of the montage of Brian Tamaki that News Hub Nation played last weekend. Mainstream media are the modern-day terrorists. Now, also according to the spin-off's account, Brian Tamaki and his team arrived at News Hub for that show last weekend and only found out when they got to reception that it wasn't going ahead after all. Now, those at the Freedoms NZ conference were later told that News Hub Nation had pulled the plug on them because they wouldn't say which parties were going to be announced as part of that movement. The problem being, reportedly, that some parties had still to square things away with their own boards. And when Sean Plunkett got Brian Tamaki on his platform, The Platform, on Monday, it still wasn't completely clear exactly who was under the Freedom NZ umbrella. Well, what is that? What is Rock the Vote New Zealand? Well, it's, um, it's quite an active uh, political group movement in the central Auckland from around uh, Penn uh, up to uh, um, yeah, the central part of Auckland. I know it's come a long okay. way. Okay, but here. what is but it? Because it's not a registered political party. No. Is it a Facebook so group? Been, no, they really have been behind some of the candidates uh, in the local elections. Okay. Who runs the Rock the Vote? Who's the head of Rock the Vote? Oh, Michael is his first name. What's his second name? name. Well, that's what I mean. I've only just sort of got to know them. Perhaps it's just as well then that Brian Tamaki didn't go on national television the day before. Now, when it comes to announcing in the media who's with who under which political umbrella, it was a lot smoother for the National Party leader Christopher Luxon last week on News Talk ZB. Holding power to account. The Mike Hosking Breakfast. With Radius Care, caring is our calling. News Talk ZB. I had a call from the National Party during the news. They want to come on the programme shortly. Chris Luxon make an announcement, so we'll do that for you. I think you'll probably like it. Meantime, just before I forget... Now, it's not usual that a news media outlet would take a call from a political party and then grant its leader airtime for an announcement straight away like that without knowing what it is, especially on a station which, as you heard there, tells its listeners it holds power to account. Though Mike Hosking, as you heard there, thought his listeners would like it, so he must have had some idea what the announcement was. Anyhow, about 15 minutes after that, the National Party leader was introduced on the air like this. Got a call from the National Party at 8.30, said they want to, um, want to, want to, want to have Chris Luxon come on the programme and uh, make a statement, so um, he is with us. Very good morning. Morning, Mike. Good to be with you. And soon after that, the announcement prompted by Mike Hosking. Will you rule out working with the New Zealand Maori Party or Te Party Maori? Uh, yes, we will, because um, it's clear to me uh, that we have just such strongly different policies and vision for New Zealand. And that interview on the Mike Hosking Breakfast last week wound up this way. You know, at the moment, um, we need to, to get this country sort of turned around and moving forward positively, and um, that's where the focus needs to be. But every week we're dicking around having these conversations, which is unhelpful. Appreciate your time, Chris Luxon. So there's the news. They have ruled out working with the uh, the Maori Party. You would think that that was an obvious decision to make. They haven't made it, but they've made it on this programme this morning, so we're grateful for that 10 minutes away from nine. And like Mike, the listeners whose feedback he read out after the ad break liked it too.
So I applaud him coming on the show and getting this across and clarifying their position. Finally, Luxon sounds like a leader. Great news. Mike, I'm going to vote for Chris because he just said dicking around on the radio. <laughs> we said the same thing with him. Woo! However, what the Mike Hosking breakfast billed as a new announcement wasn't really news to those who'd tuned into RNZ National and heard Morning Report's Ingrid Hipkiss ask Chris Hipkins this about 45 minutes earlier. Are you now ready to rule them out of any future coalition deals? Well, look, as I've said, it's just, it's just I can't see a way in which we would be working with the Māori Party. Um, you know, our values are just not aligned. We believe in very different things. But Christopher Luxon had previously been careful to say it was merely unlikely that they could coexist with Te Pāti Māori in a coalition. So ignorant Hipkiss then asked Christopher Luxon this for clarity. So you are ruling out working with the Māori Party? Yes, I can't see us working with the Māori Party going forward. And that cleared that up. And after Christopher Luxon announced it again on News Talk ZB, the National Party announced the stance in official statements online and in messages to party members about an hour after that, and then at a media conference after 10am. Now, political editors and commentators said that this sudden captain's call from Christopher Luxon did firm up likely post-election coalition options for both blocs. But the National Party's move itself, they said, was no surprise. But there was a surprise to hear how easy it was for the National Party to get its leader on News Talk ZB with one phone call during a news bulletin to announce something he'd just made clear in another interview that same morning. And there were no problems either this week for Te Pāti Māori getting an exclusive interview with its new MP on Radio Wātea, the Māngari-based urban Māori station that's the biggest one in the nationwide network of iwi radio stations, Te Ho. Because I think there's a lot that we need to hold the government account, accountable for, uh, for the gaps that we are seeing, I'm seeing throughout my electorate, but throughout the nation. That was Mecca Whaiteri winding up Wātea's Wednesday night show this week, Tamahiri Talks, in which the host, John Tamahiri, was introduced this way. He is without doubt one of the movers and shakers in Taumai. Pragmatic, assertive, bold. He's long been an articulate voice for urban Māori, a qualified commercial lawyer. He spearheaded the setup of Te Whanua Waipareira, a vehicle of empowerment he still runs nearly three decades on. And John Tamahiri was also announced as having another significant political position. A former minister in the Labour government, he's now the president of Te Pāti Māori and is a highly regarded broadcaster, social and political commentator. And as a president of Te Pāti Māori, John Tamahiri, according to many reports, played a key role in persuading his guest Mecca Whaiteri to defect from the Labour government. The Pākehā political pundits and a few silly natives have... Um, Opine, opine that uh, that you haven't given them a proper uh, mm. excuse. Excuse. They frame it as if you have done something terribly wrong. What do you say to that? Well, people know exactly what I've done. You know, returning to a calling that is who you are as a Māori, your whakapapa and your puku uh, calling you back there. Our people get that. Mecca Whaiteri went on to say it wasn't her job to educate the ignorant of her decision to switch parties. And John Tamahiri went on to say it was a good decision. I think you've been vindicated by the latest polls because you've given the Māori Party a 1.7% bump. <laughs> but um, number, you know, as the Parker says, numbers don't lie. And, um, yeah. you know, it's been all upside in regard to where you're heading. Now, just before the Tamahiri Talks show went on air last Wednesday, Radio Wātea listeners heard this disclaimer. Kia ora. The views expressed in this programme are those of the host and not of Radio Wātea, its board or management. 
But the Tamahiri talk show last Wednesday certainly reflected the views of the host and the president of Te Pāti Māori. With the budget coming up the next day, John Tamahiri kicked off his show with a long political editorial about reforming the tax system and taxing the wealthy more, especially, he said, those who influence our political parties. So let's, un- let's unpack the 2% that are funding National and Act and New Zealand First. Let's, let's, why are they funding them? Because they buy politicians to continue to keep the status quo. It's a failing status quo for 90% of Aotearoa, 90%. And no one's got the backbone or the guts to speak the truth of it. And coincidentally, that same day, the New Zealand Herald had a story by business investigations reporter Matt Nippet, who reported that the Waipareira Trust charity John Tamahiri Leeds had just agreed to cease making political donations and that it would try to claw back hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest-free loans advanced to John Tamahiri. Now, last year, the Herald revealed that the Waipareira Trust and the National Urban Māori Authority had contributed nearly half a million dollars to John Tamahiri's Auckland mayoral election bid and Te Pāti Māori's 2020 general election campaign, funding which, the Herald said, had made the charities one of New Zealand's largest political donors. And the Herald pointed out that scrapping this line of finance could hit Te Pāti Māori's election campaign later this year. Now, Radio Waitea is owned by Tefano o Waipareira, the Waipareira Trust, and the Manako Urban Māori Authority, both members of the National Urban Māori Authority, of which John Tamahiri is also currently the chief executive. And it'll be interesting to see how the Tamahiri Talks show on Radio Waitea will handle issues involving Te Pāti Māori when the upcoming election draws closer. And likewise, other media using John Tamahiri as a political commentator, in spite of his active political role in Te Pāti Māori, and recruiting candidates like his guest on Radio Waitea's Tamahiri Talks show, this week, Mecca Faitari. Hayden Donnell took a look at that on Midweek Media Watch this week, our weekly catch-up with Knights every Wednesday here on RNZ National. He also looked at some impressive political fact-checking and whether the media need to change tack reporting economists' forecasts. And he also looked at coverage of the Loafers Lodge disaster earlier this week and how, even in the midst of chaos and confusion, as the horror of what happened was still unfolding, some people jumped to conclusions on air far too early. And probably what doesn't work is the people are respecting the regulations and I suspect it might be not unkind but fair to say that the residents of this property are probably less disciplined. But reporters gave us crucial context and pointed to the questions that need to be asked and answered in coming days. While the firefighters are being praised, at the same time they're almost saying, well, we're getting the job done in spite of the equipment and the resourcing constraints that we face and it's gone on long enough. They've said to me, one of them said to me last night, I wonder if this is our Grenfell moment. RNZ's Phil Pennington there on Morning Report earlier this week reporting on constraints faced by firefighters who came face to face with that tragedy and previous fire emergencies also that included failures in the fleet of trucks and appliances. And the Grenfell moment that they spoke of there to Phil Pennington was a reference to the Grenfell Tower disaster when 72 people died in a fire in London in 2017. Now, the circumstances were very different. Grenfell Tower was a much bigger building, clad in unsafe stuff, whereas the Loafers Lodge tragedy is now being investigated with arson as a possible cause. 
but both raised concerns about questions of adequacy of social housing provision, the response to safety concerns and the capability of the emergency response. And in the UK, the role of the media in that, both before and after the Grenfell Tower disaster, has also been examined in the years since then. A large part of the failures leading up to Grenfell were, was this huge focus on deregulation, almost fixation really on getting rid of these regulations, too much regulation, it stifles innovation. And when it comes to housing and safety and fire safety, it seems crazy. You know, these, these regulations are in place for a reason. And we'll have more on that next weekend here on Media Watch. But for now, that's all we have for you this weekend, though we'll be back again with more on the media with Midweek Media Watch after the 10pm news next Wednesday on Nights with Mark Leishman. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.